Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Peaceful Body Podcast. My name is Inez Bai, and I am a health and mindset coach helping women to feel at peace within their bodies, to heal their relationships with food, and basically just live their best, most balanced, most aligned life, whatever that looks like for you. And today I have an incredible interview with Beck Gazillion, who is an eating disorder psychologist. And I was really keen to just hear all of her perspectives and her experience and wisdom that she's gained over the past um, six years that she's been working in this field for around diet culture, around why eating disorders are on the rise, around fat phobia and how we can start to develop our own healthier relationships with our bodies. So very aligned to this podcast if you've been here for a little minute. So before we get stuck into today's juicy interview, I just wanted to give you a little update on my end. I am hosting a free masterclass. These masterclasses I always get such good feedback from and really great turnouts and so I've decided to host another one it's going to be next Wednesday the 19th of August I'm going to leave the link in the show notes so that you can join it's totally free there are going to be some juicy prizes announced at the end and it's going to be all about backing yourself and I've decided to do this topic because every single day I speak to women who just feel like they cannot say what is on their mind or they feel like they constantly have to be submissive or they just need to sweep things under the rug and I want to show you the tools that I use my clients and that I've been using up as a part of my own life so that I can stand in my power so that I can be true to myself so that I don't feel scared to be seen or heard because you do have so much to offer and when you feel confident within yourself you um, save so much energy and you can actually make way better decisions and not always be stuck in this sense of inner conflict so I would absolutely love to see you there like I said the link to join me is in the show notes it's totally free there will be a replay sent out if you can't make it live although I would love to see you there live as well. So yeah, let's get started on today's podcast episode with the fantastic Beck. Okay, hello. I am here today, Inez Bai is my name, the host of the podcast. I am here today joined by Beck, who I have met through coaching at a gym that I coach at. We've known each other for a couple of months and I have always been really interested in the work that Beck does, which I'll get you to introduce in a moment. But there have been lots of little snippets that we've had conversations through at the gym and we obviously really like align in our, I guess, our approach towards certain things. Um, so I'm beyond excited to have you on the podcast today, Beck. I feel like it's been a long time coming and I just know that you have mm-hmm. so much wisdom to share. So do you want to give a little intro as to who you are, what you do, what your passion is in the world, and we can get started from there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I am Beck. <laughs> uh, I am a registered psychologist and I actually specialize in working with uh, eating disorders, but also related issues like body image issues, um, exercise issues, or just disordered eating. Um, and I've been doing this for about six years now. Um, and I've had quite a, I guess I've had, I've been lucky because I've been able to work across a few different sectors. So, um, I work in private practice at the moment, but, um, I've done some work on inpatient units. I've done some work on, um, outpatient programs, which is more like your day programs and group programs that you might do in the community. Um, and, uh, yeah, then my private practice work, which is working, I guess, kind of mostly one-on-one or with families, um, in a private setting where they come along for appointments. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of a bit about what I do. Um, what else? Mm. Yes. Which is why I'm so excited to bring you on board. Cause something that I'm really passionate about is obviously working as a coach with body image and re- relationship with food, but I've spoken very openly on this podcast about seeing psychologists and different therapists as well. And I always really, mm. something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. And I've spoken to you is like, yes, obviously a coach can do some of the work and can be really helpful, but always knowing like the scope and the boundaries. So that's why I thought it'd be really helpful for you to come on and talk about a little bit more of the the psychology work that you do specifically. So mm-hmm. tell us how you got into this. I'm really interested to hear all this because I feel like I've known you for a while, but I'm like, don't know any of your backstory. So yeah, share with us how you got yeah. into it. Uh, it's actually not anything particularly glamorous. I didn't, I, funnily enough, I never set out specifically to work with eating disorders. So there are a lot of people out there who have wanted to do that from the get go. Um, it wasn't something that had ever really crossed my radar until I came to, I guess what you would call the fifth and sixth year of study or, or training as a psychologist. And um, I had to do an internship and I stumbled across a 
placement um, at a practice called Body Matters, which is where I'm at now. And um, I started off just doing some, a little bit of admin and a little bit of like, I guess, scoring assessments and things like that on the side. Uh, and then very quickly just really fell into the team and really started to love the work and the clients. And so um, I basically did my training, the last of my training in eating disorders. Um, and I've stayed there ever since. So uh, yeah, it wasn't something that I initially set out to do. But once I started working in this area, um, I just really loved it. And I guess I'm at a point now where um, as a woman myself, I feel really passionate about supporting other women, but also about um, being someone who has the skill set to do that. I think it's really important to do that. Um, so even though it may not be something that I do full time or for the rest of my life, I think there'll always be an element of um, wanting to share my wisdom or wanting to um, make sure that there's good um, information and support out there for women. So uh, that's kind of what's kept me doing this work. Mm. Oh yeah. I so agree. I feel like what you're doing is so important, obviously. What, so tell us like, how do you get into being like, cause obviously they're a psychologist, right? So how do you mm. get into being like specialized? What's the process with that? Um, I guess, I guess it's not really a formal term. You don't get some kind of label that says, okay, I'm a specialist in treating eating disorders. But um, I suppose just because that's where all of my work has been. Um, and that's where a lot of the training that I've done has been um the the kind of casual language I might set, use when I talk to people is saying that's kind of what I treat mm-hmm. or that's what I work with um it doesn't mean that that's all I do so uh eating disorders are pretty complex and we'll get into a bit more of that later but um it also means that I'm working with things like depression and anxiety and trauma and you know OCD and all those sorts of things that might come along with it um but generally it's just where you focus your, your attention, I suppose. So a lot of the additional training that comes after uni is seeking out courses and workshops um, and making sure that you've got professional supervision from sort of people that are more senior than you. Uh, so that's, I've generally just stayed in that eating disorder field and tried to get experience across a range of different sectors. And I guess that's kind of what makes this my niche area. Mm, yeah. Cause like you said, it's, I mean, I feel like if, for the treatment it needs to be quite specific right like I feel like you yeah. need to obviously have some sort of like background in it because it is so complex and it covers so many different areas of your life and mm. yeah sure. yeah I think that's the, the the defining factor that if you um you sort of either do it or you don't do it with mm. eating disorders um it's not something that you can really dip your toe into uh if you're really going to treat eating disorders you need to know how um because otherwise there is that risk of um you know i guess applying the wrong treatment or, or doing something that maybe isn't going to get the outcome that you're looking for so um i guess in some ways it's a little bit different than say just anxiety or depression where most psychologists will will treat those things um I find at least personally and in my circles, uh, people either feel confident to do it um, or are looking to get confident to do it or perhaps don't, don't choose to, to treat in this area. Mm, yeah, which is something else I talk about a lot on the podcast because um, like for me personally, my psychologist, I've spoken to her about what I do, but I don't go to her for an eating disorder because I don't have one. But there have been sometimes she'll say things like, about the gym or exercising or something. And I'm like, "Mm," like, I wouldn't really like, I'm glad I'm like on the other side of that where I don't really get like triggered Mm -hmm. or anything. But not Mm -hmm. that she says anything like specifically, but that's why I feel like it is really important that if you are going for a psychologist and especially if you listen to this and you're like, okay, maybe I need someone that is specific to know Mm -hmm. that there are people out there that help exactly with that. And it does require like what you said, a a bit more of a niche um, skill set. And, and mm. instead of like, not, not to like dismiss um, anxiety on its own, but it's just like that extra layer, isn't it? Yeah, just that extra layer of understanding. And as you said, um, some things that we might think are, um, you know, just a kind of ordinary thing that we might say in conversation, mm. we may not realise can be um, triggering for someone with an eating disorder or could be taken um, out of context or, or, you know, filtered to mean something different. So it's just those little things that um, the language that we use, the, the words that we use, um, things that we try and stay away from talking about, that sort of thing, um, that it's harder to know if you don't have a lot of experience in this area. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And as I always say as well, like it's so important that people don't like give up on the first psychologist, like say if they don't vibe with them or whatever. Yeah. There are so many out there. Like you will find someone that you really vibe with and it's just about creating a like connection with someone. That's like a big part of it. 
Absolutely. I think um, at the bottom line is that people change through connection. Mm. Um, so really there isn't one great psychologist out there and there isn't one great treatment approach out there. It's actually the combination of the person and the psychologist. It's the connection. It's the relationship that creates a space to change. So across the board, even outside of eating disorders, I always say to people, look, see if you can find someone that you feel like you're going to gel with, someone that you feel like you're going to, to fit with, um, and then give it three sessions. Um, mm. Try not to judge it too quickly. Maybe give it three sessions or five sessions. Decide what you're willing to commit to. But um, it's perfectly okay to also say, yeah, I wasn't really feeling it. Um, and, you know, your psychologist doesn't take offense to that. We, we're human too and, you know, we're, we're naturally going to gravitate towards some people um, just like every other human. And so it's important that when you're looking for a therapist, you feel like you found that person that, that understands and, and that you can connect with because the connection is what's going to help you reach your goals. Mm, yeah, that like you just got to vibe with someone and just not take it personally. If it does, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it's just not the right time too, you know. So it's it's not always the person or the approach. It might just be the time in your life or the resources that you have to to give to that at that moment. Mm, so wise, couldn't agree more. So let's talk about eating disorders then. Mm-hmm. So I feel like in the past, you know, like if I think back to when my mom was growing up, for example, there was not really this discussion around eating disorders or maybe like, you know, it was quite like, I guess like, even if we think about all mental health, right, it was quite like stigmatized and like put to the side and there was something really wrong with you that was like unexplainable. Mm -hmm. And so I I always think about how grateful I am to be growing up in this time that I am now because I have so much more access to information. There's so much more open discourse about mental illness or eating disorders. But then I also think about how even though we have more of this information and we're exposed to more, yeah, it's easier to get resources. You know, you can Google anything, which is a blessing and a curse. Mm. And yet why are there more? Would you say that there are more eating disorders now or do you feel like it's a combination of maybe being diagnosed more or what, what? Yeah, what's your take on the whole thing? And do you feel like it's risen over the past couple of years and why do you think that is? It's, it's hard to be really clear on this, and I think stats are really hard to interpret, but um, generally, if you do look at the statistics, they do say that the eating disorders, the prevalence of eating disorders is on the rise, and I think that would probably be in the last sort of 30-odd years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's probably a number of factors for this. Um, I think definitely access to information. So we have, you know, smartphones in our hands and we can look up anything and everything. Um, I would sort of agree with you even when I was in high school and granted I grew up in a country town and, you know, it was probably a little bit different to metropolitan areas, but um, I didn't really even know what a calorie was or, you know, I, I didn't really have much information about diet and nutrition that maybe came later, like much later in high school, or if you did, you know, food tech or something like that. Um, but nowadays I think the access to information starts a lot younger. Um, most kids are getting mm-hmm. phones, you know, by the time they get to year six or year seven. Um, and we can access a lot of stuff on the internet and a lot of that's great stuff, but a lot of that's not so great stuff. Um, and I guess, you know, we can't really deny the cultural and social influences either um, things like social media um, and just generally the amount of media that we're bombarded with all the Mm. time um, as well so I think there's probably just a lot of layers to this and we probably don't know exactly why Um, not dismissing that eating disorders didn't exist prior to the last 30 odd years they definitely did but we have also become better at diagnosing them um, giving them appropriate names um, and being able to be more inclusive in the diagnostic process so that we're capturing a variety of different types of eating disorders Mm, yes. Can you explain what that would be to be more inclusive? Because I've done a little bit of reading around mm-hmm. this, especially when um, the like Black Lives Matters movement came up and there, I follow a lot of like black women that are also body positive and they were talking a lot about how often black women slip through the cracks because they don't fit into the very specific criteria there were. So I would love to hear from you. Like, yeah. What is being more inclusive and what does that look like now? Yeah. Look, the diagnostic manual is still a little restrictive in some mm. ways and there is a lot of advocacy going on around this and there are a lot of people, um, you know, pushing that agenda of creating uh, an even more inclusive set of diagnostics. Um, I guess some of the things that tend to be restrictive is most people have heard of things like anorexia and bulimia mm. um, and they tend to be the two eating disorders that are spoken about quite a bit, particularly in the media. Um, we also have binge eating disorder disorder. Um, 
as well, which actually captures most of the, the, the diagnoses of any disorders. But we also have um, something called OSFED, which is other specified feeding or eating disorder. So mm. if someone doesn't fit perfectly into one of those eating disorders, we don't just say, okay, well, you don't have an eating disorder. Mm. Um, we, we sort of can use this other category. And there are some other atypical presentations that might fit in there. So for example, um, many people will exhibit the, the symptoms and behaviours of anorexia, but may not be sitting at what is deemed um, a low weight or being underweight that doesn't mean that they don't have anorexia. Mm. Um, and this is a big myth, I suppose, that, that is out there. Um, and it's really harmful. It's really harmful to say just because somebody sits at a certain body weight, they don't have that illness. Um, so what we really need to understand is that eating disorders are disorders about eating, <laughs> the way mm. we eat, the relationship that we have with food and eating. They're not weight disorders. So weight is a often a symptom, you know, changes to weight can occur as a symptom of the, the disorder, but the disorder itself is a, a psychiatric illness that is to do with the thinking and the feeling and the behaving around food. Um, so yeah, we, we can be much more inclusive with that that category of OSFED. Um, but the other thing that we, we need to keep in mind is that most people eating disorders are generally what we call transdiagnostic. Most people move across diagnoses. So they don't, they don't strictly stay within one diagnosis for the, the rest of their life. We, they tend to sort of move in and out of periods perhaps of restriction and then periods of binge eating. Um, and that's very normal as well. So that's something that, um, you know, it's important to talk about that, it, you know, we don't always fit perfectly and neatly into categories. I mean, no human generally does. So yeah. <laughs> we have to, you know, we have to take diagnostics with a grain of salt and at the end of the day, treat the person um, and treat the symptoms. Mm, yeah, not feel like we need to box everything in because I feel like so many of us love to do that because it's like, mm. oh, that's what you are and this is how I can like categorize you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I feel like it's really helpful to know that your weight doesn't necessarily determine whether or not you're like, you know, bad enough to have an eating disorder because that would be such a barrier for some people to seek mm. help or to feel like, uh, they're allowed to actually go and get support or to feel like, because, you know, so often I feel like, and we can talk about this more in what you see with your clients, but do you feel like a lot of um, your clients potentially don't feel like their approach is necessarily harmful? And I feel like if you're seeing, oh, if you're having an eating disorder, you need to look this way and you need to have these certain symptoms, mm. then you feel like whatever you're doing is maybe like not unhealthy in a way. Do you feel like that comes up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the ironic thing here is that there's never a sick enough. There's yeah. never a thin enough. Um, and it's it's funny because, you know, disordered eating exists on a spectrum, essentially, mm. um, ranging from, you know, perhaps what we might call normal eating, which isn't all that normal. Um, and then, you know, we have that sort of normal eating down one end and, and clinical eating disorders down the other end. And they tend to be the extremes. Most people sit somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Um, but it's it, you know, disordered eating is the major risk factor for going on and developing a clinical eating disorder. So we want to capture anyone who has a bad relationship with food, anyone who feels like that their relationship with their body or food is causing them distress because we don't want to wait until there is a sick enough. And in my experience, even when I work with people who are very much in that clinical category, they still will never feel as though they're sick enough. Um, the, the, the goalposts are always moving. So I, I generally say to people that that in and of itself is a disordered thought. So if you're wondering if you're sick enough, mm. um, you know, a healthy person or a well person or someone who feels good about themselves doesn't worry about whether they're sick enough. Mm, yeah, that is really that powerful. It's, yeah, that's such a good reminder for like, I mean, any mental illness really, mm, right? Absolutely, yep. So what does make some people more um, likely to develop an eating disorder or disordered eating? Mm. There's lots of things. So the, the best way to describe this is um, by sort of saying, look, there's, there's never going to be any one thing that, that causes someone to develop an eating disorder. Um, but what we know is that there are a few different things that can increase the risk or increase a person's vulnerability. Um, and generally, we look at kind of three major categories here. So we look at genetics, we look at psychological factors, and then we look at the social, cultural, environmental factors. Um, 
we, we are, the research into genetics is still pretty new with eating disorders, but um, we do know that there is a genetic component. So there's a heritable component, um, but it's not that simple. It's not really mm. linear and straightforward. So it's quite a complicated interaction, um, usually between genes and then other non-inherited factors as well. Um, but we, we generally might... Um, you know, when we're assessing someone who has an eating disorder, we might ask, you know, is there anybody else in your family, you know, an aunt, an uncle, you know, a sibling, grandparent that's struggled with eating because it's not unusual to see some kind of um, relationship there. Um, the psychological factors are pretty important. So these are the other things like a person's temperament, um, mm-hmm. some of their personality factors or traits. Um, and these are usually things that are there long before the person develops an eating disorder. And they're mm-hmm. not inherently bad things, but they might be things that kind of contribute to what we call the perfect storm, you know, having mm-hmm. a multitude of things that come together at a point in time where the, the eating disorder develops. Um, so these things are usually people who tend to be a bit more perfectionistic, um, perhaps people who would tend to be a little bit more rigid um, or maybe might have obsessive compulsiveness. So not OCD per se, but but might have those kind of character traits of anxiety-based disorders or um, really liking to stick to routine, liking to do things the same way all the time. Um, of course, people who perhaps are prone to depression or low mood um, or have low self-esteem, low confidence. Um, And the other thing that's really important here is understanding things like um, how we deal with our emotions. Mm -hmm. So we all have a different emotional sensitivity. The way we feel emotions is not the same. Um, It's a little bit like the example I use with with, um, my clients is, you know, if you lined up 10 people in a row and you pricked each one of them on the finger with a pin, their experience of how painful or not it was would be different. It's a subjective experience of pain. What we sort of forget in society is that we all have a subjective experience of emotions. Mm. So for one person, sadness might be completely overwhelming where they just can't get out of bed. For another person, it might just be, oh, I feel a bit flat today. Um, Same with things like anger or frustration or shame or guilt. You know, the way that we feel those things is different um, and how intensely we feel them, how frequently we feel them and how long they last is different. Um, So for people who are particularly highly emotionally sensitive um, or maybe don't know how to um, manage those emotions or or tolerate those emotions, there's perhaps going to be a higher risk there of developing a maladaptive coping strategy. Um, And then, of course, the the last category, so the social, cultural, environmental stuff. So this is kind of your typical stuff, like internalizing the thin ideal, social media, mm. airbrushing, that kind of thing. Um, but some of the other things that are really important here are like role modeling. So mm. what, what was the language like in your family about bodies and diets and food? Um, what, what were your parents like when they spoke about their own bodies? Um, what did you hear? What were you exposed to? What were your peers and siblings like? Um, what sort of weight and shape behaviours were in your family? You know, were people dieting all the time? Um, Was there good and bad foods and and things like that? Um, And then any kind of trauma um, would come into play here as well. Um, Bullying, especially weight-based bullying or Mm. or comments about weight and shape or appearance. Um, And then generally just like diet culture, fat phobia, that that kind of stuff is going to come into play here too. So, we would normally think about the perfect storm developing by having maybe a bit of each of those categories. Um, and it plays out in a bit of a developmental sequence. So usually over a period of years where each of those things kind of cumulatively comes together. And then at a certain point, um, an eating disorder might develop. Mm-hmm. I was smiling through that. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, definitely ticked a few of those boxes. And then for me, like I would definitely say I was someone that used to be, and I'm obviously done a lot of work on myself, but used to be so highly strung, loved my routine and order, like didn't have a way at all of processing my emotions, have always been like, I guess, quite sensitive, which I now see as something that is my strength as opposed to being Mm. like a weakness. And then being around a family and a school that was very much like diet culture was so a part of the language that it wasn't even like I ever questioned it. Right. Which is something that we still see today. Even today, like I like we'll speak to my friends all the time and they're like, no, no, no. Like I don't have any judgments against fat people or, you know, I would never judge anyone about their food. But then you hear these really interesting comments. If we think about like Adele's, you know, recent weight loss and how the media has made this huge thing about it. And everyone was saying, oh, well, you know, she was promoting obesity before. And it's like, hmm. 
it, like that doesn't really make like what if you're not if you're not fat phobic and you're not judging against fat people then how can you say those kinds of things because you don't really realize yeah. where they stem from right so could you give us like a little bit of an unpacking of diet culture and fat phobia <laughs> This is a tough one because, yeah, it's a big question. But the other thing is, you know, we're all cogs in this system. So I'm not sitting here speaking as though I am outside of this system. I'm in it too. Um, And part of my work and and part of, I guess, the work that we should all be doing is always consciously being aware of our beliefs and our biases. You know, where have they come from? What do I think about that? What do I feel about that? Um, And why? And so it's it's something that I try and be conscious of all the time. And it's something that I I constantly try and be aware of, but I'm also aware that I exist in this system. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in this system. Um, I am also exposed to the media. I'm also exposed to the diet products. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It saturates us. It's all around us and we can't really remove ourselves from it. Um, I think, this is a really tricky topic to talk about Mm -hmm. because there's lots of different layers to this. Um, But generally I think we need to just, consciously question ourselves all the time on the beliefs that we have you know do we have thoughts that um one body type is more attractive one body type Mm -hmm. is more worthy one body type is more lovable um you know even things like one body type is more capable or Mm -hmm. um one body type is more lazy you know where do these beliefs come from and why do we think that um and being I guess, able to question those beliefs in the everyday things that we do. So we probably don't realise that, you know, a lot of our society doesn't um, cater well for people that are in larger bodies. Like, you know, we know some of those really common examples like aeroplane seats or going to the movie cinema, but understanding that if you exist in, I guess, a, a thinner body or a smaller body, there's an element of privilege that comes with that because your life is easier. It's mm-hmm. easier for you to um, fit into the structures around us that have been catered for those smaller bodies um and you know we know that this maps onto other things too you know when we talk about privilege but in this particular uh case i guess talking about larger bodies versus smaller bodies we need to be really aware of um what we don't know you know if we've never existed in a larger body then we don't know what that experience is is like um but i think diet culture generally just absolutely surrounds all of us Mm. um and it would be silly to say that we're not all impacted it would be silly to say you know i can't sit here and say oh i don't have a bad body day everybody has bad body days or everybody might have a time when they compare to somebody else or feel insecure we we have to sort of understand that in the culture that we live in, there's an element of normality in that. So um, I'm not going to sit here and demonize having any kind of worry about yourself and your body. It's about understanding that spectrum and understanding well, at what point does it become debilitating or at what point does it start to affect your quality of life? Um, and, you know, it's up to each person themselves to decide when it's not working for them. You know, it's not really up to me to tell people how to live their lives, but rather if they're coming to me and saying, I don't, I don't feel good about this or I don't know how to manage this or, you know, I can't cope with social media because I'm constantly comparing myself, then we probably want to do a bit of work on um, unpacking it a bit. Mm, yes. This is something I hear with my clients all the time because, you know, they'll be working on having a better body image or just feeling more confident and, they then suddenly realize how all of their conversations with their friends are around dieting, around losing weight, all of those kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. So what are your tips in those situations as to how to respond and how to have new conversations almost? Yeah, absolutely. This is a major thing that I work on with my clients and I've done Mm. lots of groups on this because, you know, particularly for someone with an eating disorder, right? It's hard to escape. I mean, for all of us, that stuff's not, not great. It's not good for our wellbeing, but if you're in recovery, oh my gosh, it's so hard when everywhere you go, your workplace, your friends, you know, you're standing in line at a cafe, there's constant talk about what's in food and diets Mm. and, oh, I'm being so bad because I'm eating a piece of cake, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So, so we, we call this fat talk. Um, it, it, mm. It's kind of um, something that has been researched quite a bit. Um, and there's a lot of research now that's coming out around, you know, the effects of social media as well. But generally, this kind of conversation, so comparing bodies, comparing food, talking about calories, talking about, I guess, like the moral compass around food and eating, um, it's, it's really harmful to everyone involved. And We've probably all had a time in our lives where we felt that 
um, you know, talking about something on our bodies that makes us feel insecure with a friend and then having them return with a comment of, oh, yeah, I don't like my ex, we think it makes us feel better. Um, you know, we think that it's connecting. We think that it's oh, okay, great. We all feel the same way. We all have flaws. But in reality, the research tells us that those conversations actually go on to make us feel worse. Mm. Everybody that partakes in that conversation goes on to feel worse about themselves and worse about their bodies. So my advice, at least to my clients, is to just absolutely stay away from it. Mm. And I don't think that we need to apologize for being assertive in this area either. It's not about criticizing other people it's not about shaming other people because remember they're cogs in the system too it's just about politely and assertively either exiting if if you don't feel like it's right for you um or asking people hey would you mind if we change the subject or do you mind if we don't talk about that i don't actually find that that helpful um or for a lot of my clients, if they don't feel confident enough to be assertive, we'll mm. talk about little ways that they can get around that. Like maybe that's a good time to go and have a bathroom break or step outside. Or um, if you're at a party, maybe that's a good time to go and find the dog and you know play yes. with it for a while. Um, but I think eventually we want to get to a place where we can say to people, hey, do you mind if we talk about something else um, or we change the topic? Because, you know, really talking about dieting is not all that interesting anyway, but more than that, it actually causes harm. You know, we don't know what's happening for other people. And I guess my pet peeve is more so when you're with people that you don't know. So yeah. if you're in a public forum or, you know, you're in a big group or you're at a party, you don't know who's there. You don't know what their background is. You don't know what they struggle with or, or, or don't struggle with. So, um, you know, really kind of overt conversations about weight and shape and calories are not helpful. Yes. And I am just envisioning back to like when I was maybe like 20 or something to have stood in that situation and been like, I don't want to talk about this would have felt yeah. so overwhelming. But I do believe that it's really helpful to have some templates of what to say, you know, even yeah. just like, oh, can we change the conversation? Because again, they were like, I don't even know if I listened to podcasts when I was 20, but that's something that's always still to this day really helped me and just knowing when to leave mm. a conversation. And I feel like now for me, being someone that is in a position of privilege that has a body that's very societally um, accepted to just not mm -hmm. talk about it or to say something could, could then prevent that from continuing to go on. You know, if someone feels like they can always come to you with that same conversation, they're going to be stuck in that cycle as well. But something so little as even as you just leaving or just not responding to it can, yep. can almost give them a bit of like a, a point to reflect and be like, Oh, why do I think this? And is this all I want to talk about? And is there something else that I can bring to the table potentially? Yeah, absolutely. And if you find yourself in that position where a friend says, oh, you know, I really hate this about myself or I feel really, you know, unconfident about this, try not to get into that pattern of reassurance either. Like, oh, no, yeah. you know, you look great because we don't want to get into that that sort of spiral of just talking about bodies as though they're the only things that matter. It's okay to comfort a friend, but maybe that's a good opportunity to say, hey, are you feeling okay? Or, um, you know, what can I do? You know, is there something else you want to do? Can we focus on something else? You know, should we put on a show to watch? And, and just try and sort of deviate from that altogether because it's not going to help them to feel better about that. And it's not going to help you to feel better to feel like you have to jump in and, and join it because, um, you know, that just leaves us all feeling a bit icky about our bodies and that's not helpful for anyone. Mm, yeah. I feel like a huge fear that a lot of women generally that I speak to is that, well, if I don't say something to them or if I don't mm. agree with them, then that person's going to think that I'm like, arrogant or, you know, I've got yeah. to be like submissive and not make that person feel uncomfortable. But yeah, if yeah, it's it's it, that's really good advice though. I think that's really helpful to be like, oh, you don't have to reassure that person, and actually, by not reassuring them, it's going to be more helpful in the long run, and that's what the research shows as well, right? Yeah, so we're just kind of stopping those conversations yeah. is probably the best way to go. And sometimes it will feel a little jilted and, you know, yeah. a tiny bit awkward. But, I mean, a bit of awkwardness is probably better than going on to, to something that's more harmful. So. <sighs> yes, absolutely. So let's talk about dieting. Mm -hmm. I love talking about dieting and like, obviously, I've been through my own journey. I feel like I've done so many different diets and because that's what all I knew, right? I didn't really, like I grew up having reading women's health magazine every single week and just being like, this is going to be the next best like diet for your abs. And I would just try every single thing that I was fed because I just thought that was truth. Right. I didn't question it, which is what you were saying before. So mm. yeah. And, and at the end of the day, 
you always, you might do a diet and this is what I see all the time with friends and family and clients. It's like, we might go through this like eight week diet and we might lose a little bit of weight. And then it seems to be that we always put it back on again. And then we go to another diet or we go to another challenge or another, I don't know, lifestyle change or whatever, you know, however they seem to market mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. for me, the thing that was really helpful, although what I have to say, and I've said this to you before, is even when I was at uni, they did give us some stats around like how dieting wasn't that helpful and how, you know, you can still be healthy even in a bigger body as long as you're exercising and moving. But it was, it's really helpful to know like the stats behind it and to actually know like the education behind it. Something I speak a lot about on the podcast as well is this idea that like, you don't have to lose weight in order to be healthy. But the fitness industry loves to put that in the box of like lose weight and be healthy as if there's no other option. And I feel like that's what makes people feel almost a sense of doom. Like if they're not losing weight, then they're not getting results or something bad is going to happen to them. Mm. So talk us through dieting, how effective it is, what you think of the fitness industry. Give us a little bit of a uh, yeah, your your view. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, look, this is a massive Pandora's box as well, and <laughs> we, we could skim the surface a little bit. But I, I, I guess the thing about dieting is that, generally speaking, they fail about ninety five percent of the time. Now, what I will say about this is, I'm not saying that people can't diet, change their diet, restrict, and lose weight. People can. Um, otherwise we wouldn't have eating disorders, right? Um, but if we try and look at how complicated the process of dieting and losing weight is, and if we actually follow people up, you know, beyond sort of 12 months, you know, all the way up to five years and 10 years, we, we see that generally people who diet to try and lose weight will regain the weight. They'll lose weight, but they'll regain the weight. Um, and some people are quite a big proportion of those people will go on to uh, actually gain more weight um, mm. than pre-dieting. Um, and there's lots of different reasons for this. Um, a lot of those things we know, like adherence, you know, that some of the diets out there are ridiculous and you're not going to be able to do that forever. Um, and it's not fun. And why would you want to do that forever? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more than that. It's, it's understanding that humans are complex. We're complex beings. We have thoughts and feelings about food. It's not just a completely neutral part of our life. So yes, you might be able to diet for a period of time and lose weight. And you might think that that's the thing that's making you feel good. And you might think that that's the thing that's making you healthier. But the reality is that we have a very complex relationship with, with food and we use food for lots of different things. It's not just about fueling our bodies. We use food to connect. We use food to show love. We use food to celebrate. Um, so there's all these other factors that need to come into play. Um, now, it, it's funny because you know, the majority of people will do a diet and they might stick to it for a little while and typically they get bored or they get over it or they kind of, you know, gradually return back to what is normal for them. Um, But the people that don't do that typically are the people that go on to develop eating disorders, like people that get stuck in the cycle of Mm -hmm. dieting or people who, um, you know, might have some of those personality traits that I talked about earlier where they're very rigid and get very fixated on things. something different happens for those people. And Mm. an eating disorder is not just a diet taken too far. I have to be really clear on that. It's a very separate thing, but we sort of tend to have people that fit into both of those camps. So either they're, they're attempting to diet and those diets aren't working mostly because as humans, we're not really designed to be Mm. losing weight. Like if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, if we're losing weight, that's telling our brain that our environment's not sufficient to, to, you know, maintain ourselves and our brain thinks we're dying. Um, And there's lots of things that kick into gear to prevent that from happening. Um, But also if we're really, you know, getting stuck in a cycle of dieting and it's starting to become something that we're fixated on and it's starting to become something that rules our life, then there's something else going on there. And it's probably something that's causing a lot of distress and, and needs treatment. Um, so we, we need to understand that this is very complex. Um, mm. And when people on Instagram or social media are, um, you know, saying, yes, diets do work, just, you know, calories in, calories out. Yes, 
that's true. We know that. But we, we know that from the fact that we can actually starve people. Um, there's a very famous study, which you're probably aware of, which is the Ansel Keys study, the starvation study, which is where we've learned a lot about what happens when people are underfed um, and what happens with our brains, what happens with our bodies, what happens with our thinking and our emotions. And that's what I mean by we're complex. It's not just as simple as saying, I need to follow X, Y, Z, and then this outcome will happen because we have to take into account the fact that we are human and we have feelings and thoughts. And, and then we also have to take into account the biology part, which is that your body will, you know, have mechanisms that kick into gear to try and sort of protect you. And, and it doesn't want to be, you know, losing weight or starving. So that's when we see things like binge eating come about, you know, and, and people feeling out of control with food. And then, we get into a bit of a shame spiral there where they think, oh, it's me. I must be the problem. You know, why am I doing this? So they try and diet some more and then they binge some more. And then, you know, over time that can become, that can become a full blown eating disorder. Mm, yes. And yeah, it's when you get in that space of like blaming yourself, it's very hard to see outside of it. And then to being in that shame spiral, because then it's mm. impossible almost to ask for help because shame tells you like you need to, deal with it on your own. I was listening to um, Brene Brown's podcast and Mm -hmm. she's, you know, obviously studies a lot about shame and she was like, shame is only really real when you're, when you're on your own and you don't tell anyone about it. As soon as you open up about how you're feeling, shame doesn't really exist. You know, there might be still an element of feeling vulnerable or embarrassed or whatever it is. So Mm. yeah, you can get really stuck in a cycle where you feel like you're for me, for example, I felt like I just wasn't coping. It wasn't that something was wrong with me. I just wasn't like disciplined enough, which is something that I, that I hate that phrase of like, just have more self-control or just have more like discipline. And it's like people with eating disorders have great (laughs) discipline for sure. It's more just about the way that they're approaching it is yeah. Unhealthy. Right. Yeah. And our, our bodies, our bodies are smarter than us. (laughs) That's kind of what it comes down to, right? That, that our bodies are the product of bodies before us. And those bodies are the products of bodies before them. And the reason that each of an, each and every one of us is here today is because our ancestors survived and our ancestors survived through famine and our ancestors survived through really harsh environments because our bodies have inbuilt mechanisms that are in there to protect us when mm. food is scarce or when our environments are not abundant. Um, and when we don't know that, when we don't know that actually the things that are happening to, to us are the normal survival responses of a body that feels like it's you know in starvation, we then start to attach this arbitrary meaning of, oh, it's me, I'm just lazy Mm. or I'm undisciplined or, you know, there's something wrong with me. Um, When in reality, you know, most people who binge, most people who who overeat or compulsively eat are doing so because there's a biological basis there. And generally it's restriction or some kind of restrained eating that is kind of triggering that survival response that says, you know what, we need more food. And and then we start to become preoccupied with food and obsessed with food. Mm. So even just the thinking part of it is related Mm. to our biology. We know that the minute that we, you know, restrict food or restrain food, our brains become preoccupied and that's all they want to think about. Mm, Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I go like a couple of hours without food and it's all I can think about now. (laughs) Like, yeah, of course. And and the reality is, yeah. When you think about, um, I I guess people, you know, often laugh and they use terms like hangry, Mm. but the reality is that hunger is uncomfortable. It's supposed mm. to be uncomfortable because hunger is a call to action. Hunger is your body saying, hello, I need some food now and you need to stop what you're doing and give it to me. Um, and, you know, if those systems are working well and if yeah. we've honored, we've always kind of honoured our bodies and fed them, you know, fairly normally, and I use that term loosely, then, then we're able to eat when we're hungry and we're able to stop when they're full and that's great and that's kind of what we consider like normal eating. Mm. Um, but if we've damaged those systems or if we've kind of damaged our relationship with our body or our ability to tune into those systems, um, then we're not going to be able to do that with ease and that's mm. why, that's kind of the, the point at which we start to look at, okay, maybe we need a bit of help and maybe we need to sort of get into treatment to help um, normalize eating again and get in touch with the body again and start to rely on those natural appetite cues. We don't need, um, you know, a meal plan or something to tell us how much mm. to eat. Our, our bodies can do that for us. It's just working out um, how to get back to the basics with that if we have a damaged relationship with food. Yeah, I speak to so many women constantly who 
are terrified of being full or like satisfied or having too much energy. It feels like a threat to them almost. They're like, oh no, 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 something bad's going to happen. And then on the flip side, don't know when to eat either because Mm. I guess for most of us and, you know, women and men, I guess for most of us, we have gotten so used to outsourcing our hunger by following a meal plan or watching what someone on Instagram is eating that we develop a habit of not listening to your body. Yes. Which is why, why, when like what, how you're describing it right now, it's like, which is like, you know, intuitive, but like, it's a biological need to be hungry. It's there for a reason. It's mm. uncomfortable for a reason. Discomfort always makes us move. Mm. And yet we get so good at not listening to it. That's right. And it would be kind of like if you decided that you could only go to the bathroom at certain times yes, and you could only go to the bathroom for, uh, you know, for this many seconds and, you know, that's, no. that's strange, right? You know, we, we think that's strange, but yet when it comes to hunger and yeah. again, some of this is media and some of this is cultural as well, but we kind of get, you know, told or taught that it's okay to sort of override it or control it when actually it's a very primal biological thing. Um, and one of the ways that, that sometimes I teach this to my clients is I, I, I talk about this idea of hunger that's above the neck and hunger that's below the neck. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, are you, um, are you tuning in and noticing hunger that is below the neck, i.e. in your body, you know, and for most of us, we have some cues, you know, a grumbly tummy or we feel empty or we get those hunger pangs. Um, sometimes it's low energy or, um, you know, headache or, bit grumpy um whereas the the hunger above the neck is the thinking part Mm. like thinking about what i should eat thinking about when i should eat thinking about how much i should eat um and hunger's not really a thinking process it's a feeling process Mm. um but we've created we've created it to be a thinking process and we um create rules and we create guidelines when in fact um all we have to do is is listen to our bodies for that um and again i caveat that by saying not everybody can do that because if you've had an eating disorder or if you've been engaging in disordered eating, then it's not going to be as simple as saying, okay, tomorrow I'm just going to listen to my body. Um, mm-hmm. we, we need some help to do that. But um, it's about understanding that all of our bodies can do that. All of our bodies have those mechanisms within them. And um, if we can repair that relationship with our body and if we can get back to um, being in tune with our bodies, then we can start to utilize those mechanisms to eat more naturally. Mm, and we all have that within us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. absolutely yeah it's a good reminder I think I feel like sometimes people feel like I'll never get there or I'll never be able to you know trust my body or listen to my body again but it's obviously innate because something I always say as well is like we were all born knowing how much to eat like when you come out of the womb you know you eat enough milk or drink enough milk and then you cry when you're hungry and then you fall back asleep and so it's all within us yep yeah that's right and and somewhere along the way those systems get disrupted Mm -hmm. so what what would your advice be to someone then that has potentially had an eating disorder or maybe they've had some disordered eating habits in the past that Mm -hmm. comes to you and is like, I really want to lose weight. It's the only way I feel like I'll ever feel healthy or good about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, I guess it it depends on where they're at. So, I mean, I'm always cautious of – anyone making a statement that suggests that there's only one way to be happy. Mm. Um, you know, if, if we're tying our happiness or our self-worth to a number on a scale or one body type, then we're probably missing um, all the other things that, that can make us happy. Um, but I think that it's important to sort of understand, well, is there still any disordered eating going on? What's their relationship with food like? What's their behavior around food and eating like? Um, Because if there's a real focus on wanting to lose weight um, and a real focus on their body, but there's also still disordered thinking or or behavior Mm -hmm. around food, then my my approach is always to say, look, we, we probably need to deal with what's actually going on with the thinking and the behavior first. So we generally say, look, we need to put, the idea of weight loss on the shelf you know I'm not here to say that you can't ever lose weight but Mm. you know there's there's probably other things that we need to look at first and we need to explore here like um, is it that you're still binge eating or is it that you know you're in a cycle of restricting and then eating more at at other times of the day and then feeling guilty and then that that's what makes you not like your body and then you want to lose weight so you start all over again restrict and then eat Mm. more Um, but the other thing that I, I really say to a lot of people here is that um, you know, 
if the problem is always that you're too fat, then the answer will always be to lose weight. So if everything that, that makes you um, feel unhappy is dwindled down to this idea that it's because I'm too fat, then you'll only ever have one solution to that problem and that solution will be I have to lose weight. Mm. Um, but where it gets really tricky is what if the problem is something else? You know, mm. what if the problem is something that is not as tangible? Um, because as humans, we really like things that are black and white. We mm. really like things that are tangible, that we can see. We love to be problem solvers and we love to go, okay, this is the problem, so this is how I fix it. And that's what most of us do, especially women. We say, okay, the problem is that I'm too fat. The problem is that I need to lose weight. Okay, how do I fix it? Oh, I diet or I eat less. I lose weight. I go to the gym, whatever it's going to be. But it's very rarely the problem. Mm. Um, the problem is usually some, something that's a little bit harder to solve um, or it's a little less tangible. It's a little more complex. Um, it might be trauma. It might be self-esteem issues. It might be low confidence. It might be some self-worth stuff. And no one really likes to hear that because what's the answer to that? <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a meal plan. Mm. It's, it's not something that's so simple to say, okay, just do X, Y, Z. And the diet industry sells us formulas. It says A plus B equals C. If you just do this, then this is the answer that you'll get and you'll be happy and then ta-da, it's all done. Um, but it's not that simple. And so I think, I think sometimes why there's so much resistance around exploring other things is because it's hard. And, and it is hard. And so I never have judgments on people who um, don't want to or don't feel ready to, to do that work because it's not clear cut. It's not tangible. It's harder to, to go, okay, I'm going to dive into, you know, my past trauma or I'm going to dive into, mm. you know, where these beliefs come from about being unlovable or unworthy or where my beliefs have come from about different bodies. So um, that's kind of, I guess, what I would say is let's look outside the box a little bit and let's work out what might be going on here because most humans want the same things um, and generally those things are pretty global, like I want to be happy, I mm. want to have connection, I want to feel confident um, and that's universal, that's okay. It's okay to say I want to feel confident in myself, I want to feel good in myself but um, in my experience and I can say this from working with people ranging from you know, normal leaders right through to, you know, very, very sick people with eating disorders, there, there's no body type that's going to make you happy. Mm. Um, and it, it just, it just doesn't exist. Um, so we need to really look at some of those other things that might be going on. And um, that's probably where the shifts are going to happen. Um, mm. And, and, you know, we can find ways to feel happy and to feel confident that don't necessarily involve changing our bodies. Likewise, I'm also not suggesting that you don't do things with your body that make you feel good. I mean, there's lots of ways to do this, right? Like I'm an advocate for moving our bodies. I'm an advocate for doing things with our bodies that make us feel good, like getting a massage, giving someone a hug, you know, doing a form of movement or exercise that makes you feel good. Like you, you can feel good in your body by using your body. It's mm. not just about the way that your body looks. Mm, yeah, and I feel like for so many of us, because all we focused on for so long is food and body and going to the gym that we're just not exposed to other ways to feel good. So we don't yep. realize they're not front of mind, but yeah, yeah, this is just like such a reflection of how layered the treatment that you offer is. It's just so mm. not ever purely about food. It's about so much more than that. And so that's much more. So much more. And that's where it is obviously so important to have the right support because how the hell are you meant to dig into this all on your own? Like, impossible be so hard that's right and and even you know with the work that I do the food I kind of think about it like the food is the outer layer so what you yeah. can see on the outside is the behaviors and the way a person might eat or the way they might talk about their body or the things that they might do but by slowly peeling back the layers, we then get to the stuff that's underneath. And generally there is bigger stuff underneath. There is a bit of work that needs to be done on exploring beliefs and, you know, how we feel about ourselves and, and some of the things that we've inherited from our families mm. or generations before us. Um, and, you know, some of the traumas that we've been through, whatever it may be, but, um, the, the behaviours and the deeper stuff are related and they both need attention, but they both need attention in slightly different ways. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to ask you one more question and then we're going to go into our rapid fire to finish. Yeah. Because I'm really interested to hear from you. 
how would you love like the health and fitness industry to evolve moving forwards? Like what would be really ideal for you? Like in, in terms of like all of your background and everything that you've seen, how would you love mm-hmm. us to be, um, or, us, or like, how would you just like the new approach or the new wave or the new consciousness around health and fitness to be? I think this is a tough one because when we think about fitness and when we think about personal trainers or mm. we think about, you know, influences on social media, there's mm. no way of regulating this, this um, field, mm. you know, like for example, if you think about myself, I'm a psychologist, I have to have a registering body and be, be registered. And, and I have like a code of ethics and conduct and mm. there are really strict kind of laws about what I can do and what I can't do. Um, and when, when it comes to the fitness industry, we just don't really have a way of kind of regulating like a code of conduct um, mm. or a way to, work with people um and especially social media right like anyone can create an instagram anyone can say i'm a coach or i'm this or i'm that and and start sharing you know tips or advice on how to exercise or what to eat um and i think the thing that's really hard is consumers don't have a very good way of understanding where that information is coming from and you know is that person educated to give that information? Um, so there's so much variability in the fitness world. We're not just mm. talking about personal trainers and we're not just talking about, you know, nutritionists or dietitians or exercise physiologists or, you know, an influencer. There's so much variability. We, everybody has a different set of skills and everybody has a different set of qualifications. And if you're a vulnerable person looking for information, you may not know how to assess that information very well. Um, I think the biggest thing is is for, I, I suppose, fitness professionals to not practice outside their scope of practice. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that can be really tricky is, you know, seeing somebody whose specialty might be personal training, which we would consider exercise and movement, giving very prescriptive dietary advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the people that should be doing that are, are dietitians and people who have trained in that area so it's it's understanding where our limits are understanding what is my skill set what do I know about what don't I know about and when do I need to sort of refer on or say hey you might need a bit more specialized help in that area Um, especially because you know what we talked about before humans are complex and we generally have Mm. pretty complex relationships with food and our bodies Um, so yeah I'd really like to see there just being more personal responsibility in the fitness industry for for people to not practice outside their scope of of practice and um, to be aware of who their audience is and to be aware of how vulnerable they can be. Um, But I'd also love for there to be ways for consumers, so, you know, those of us in the community, to get a better understanding of how to choose good people or how to, to find good information so that we're not just looking at an Instagram story of someone's day on a plate and mm. then saying, oh, I should eat that too, because mm. it just doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two people can eat the exact same thing and can have a totally different reaction to it. It's wild because we're just so yeah. different, every single one of us. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So interesting. And like, for me, I feel a big thing And I feel like it's sort of going towards there, but, you know, just exercising for movement, for the way that it makes you feel rather than constantly this obsession with how many calories you're burning. And even this whole idea of like measuring your heart rate when you're exercising, I just feel like, (laughs) I just don't know why we need to know, you know, unless you're like an athlete (laughs) or something like that. But it's like this real obsession with knowing numbers and always beating yourself. And I just feel like, exercise is so much can be so much more simple than that but there's all these added layers on to give you some false sense of Mm. control in order to guarantee a result when in reality there doesn't need to be a result like it just makes you feel good and it's like such a privilege absolutely yeah yeah and it's kind of that external thing that you were talking about before right like Mm. putting putting our gauge um onto something external instead of internal like exercise should be how does this feel when i do this movement well how does my body feel do i like this am i enjoying this but instead we look at um the numbers on a treadmill or we look at the Mm. numbers on our our apple watch or we look at the numbers on the heart rate monitor and and what that's that's just using an external cue to tell us about something that should be internal um and i think the other big thing here is that exercise shouldn't be simply just to lose weight Mm. um you know that we actually absolutely need to separate those two things like we can exercise with no goal of weight loss um and in fact exercising um, and doing a variety of other things can make us healthier irrespective of our weight we don't have to lose weight to be healthier weight um, does not 
make us healthy or not healthy. It's our behaviours. It's the things that we do each day um, that make us healthy. So, um, yeah, I think disentangling exercise and weight is a really big one. Mm, and it just like it's such a journey but oh it makes exercise so much more fun for me like I just it's such a joy to get to go to the gym and not worry if I don't get to go to it and something we spoke about the other day was like how grateful I am to get to exist in the grays because like you were saying we love to be either black or white and it's Mm. yeah it's absolutely I just feel always so grateful that I get to exist in the grays and that's why I speak about what I speak about because I, I have learned so much from other people's experience as well, because you, it doesn't have to be so black and white. We get so clingy onto like, yeah. well, I've got to exercise these days and I've got to do this weight and I've got to do this heart rate. And it's just like all of these um, kind of like limits that we place upon ourselves make it so heavy almost that it just takes mm. away from mm-hmm. being able to enjoy it and, and just take it for what it is. Yeah, it's just not fun anymore. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It, it, if we're focusing on all the wrong things, if we're focusing uh-huh. on our watch or our steps or you mm. know something numerical rather than actually on how we feel and what we can see and what we can hear and who we're talking to and what the vibe is like. The vibe is all about the vibe. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to go into some rapid fire questions. The first question is, what's your favorite food? My favorite food is definitely chocolate. So chocolate and all things chocolate. I am a uh, self-professed chocoholic. However, (laughs) I also have a bit of a Messina obsession. So my Friday ritual is going down and getting the specials every week from Messina. I love it. Do you get like a scoop or like a tub? A tub. (laughs) So usually I can try, you know, at least a couple of the specials. So I usually get a tub with like three flavors and I've got to give them all a go. Absolutely. The specials are to die for always. I love that they're always so chunky. That's like my number one requirement for ice cream. Yes, absolutely. Um, What's something that you're working on within yourself at the moment? Uh, This is probably a bit cliche, but um, I, particularly in the time of COVID, I am probably working on work-life balance. Mm. So One of the things that I think is a bit of a silver lining from COVID as much as, um, you know, we're all going through a really tough time with this. I think the silver lining is the common humanity piece that's coming out of it. So Mm. it's, it's kind of like we've shed a few layers of having to always be busy, having to always look on and be professional. Um, And I think the fact that for a lot of us, we're, you know, working from home in our comfy clothes or we're having meetings with our manager or our boss while their kids are running around in the background. Mm. Like I really love that it it kind of feels like we're relaxing a little bit on this idea that we should always be burning, burning, burning all Mm. the time. Um, So for me, I'm trying to go with that quite a bit and think about, you know, what are, where are the areas that I might need to tweak or change things and how can I make sure that, you know, I've got good boundaries with work and that I'm not getting stuck in that kind of rat race idea of busier is better because it's not (laughs) Mm, it's so easy to get stuck in that way but I think that's a really timely insight into how we can all kind of look at this past couple of months which is obviously still ongoing and think about how we can apply those lessons moving forward as well um last question what Mm -hmm. does having a peaceful body mean to you uh, so I was thinking about this. Um, I really love the name, the Peaceful Body Podcast. Mm. Um, and I think the reason I love the name is because when I think about the word peaceful, I think about peace or being at peace. Mm. Um, and to me, that feels really psychological. Now, that's probably just my psychological brain. But I think if we're at peace with our body, the things that come to mind for me are we're not constantly thinking about our body. Mm. You know, we're not anxiously checking it or measuring it or comparing it. Um, We're not allowing the feelings that we have about it, positive or negative, to be the things that dictate how we live our life. You know, so whether or not we're allowed to wear clothes, certain clothes or whether or not we go to a certain party or be in a photo or give someone a hug Mm. or be intimate with someone. Um, And I think if we're at peace with our body, then we don't attach our self-worth to it. Um, We understand that it's just the physical vessel within which we live. And yes, it can be an expression of who we are and we can use it for fun. We can be creative and um, we can use it for connection and we can use it to show off our identity. Um, But it doesn't become the 
thing that actually holds us back or mm. keeps us completely preoccupied um, with, you know, stress and anxiety and worry about whether it's okay and, and whether it's good enough. Mm, brilliant. I absolutely love that. And that's exactly why I called it the Peaceful Body Podcast. And that's why my, my brand is a Peaceful Body because, it, yeah, it, for me, it's always been a more of a mind-body connection. It's not just having like a strong body or a strong mind. It's the both. So I'm glad that it gave you that vibe. Yes. <laughs> um, awesome. So if people have questions, can they reach mm-hmm. out to you some way? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you can find me at Body Matters. So Body Matters is the practice that I work at, which is located awesome. in Cremorne. Um, and if you jump onto the website, which is bodymatters.com.au, uh, you'll see there's a bunch of us there um, and you'll, you'll probably find me and my profile on there. Um, and you can also find my, my contact details there if you want to reach out. Um, the other thing that I will say is generally, if, if some people that are listening um, are looking for more information about eating disorders, then um, Butterfly is a great place to go as well. Mm. So if you've heard of Butterfly, um, they have a bunch of online resources, an excellent website and a free hotline as well. So if you're just looking to talk to someone anonymously or get some information for a friend or a family member, um, that's a really good you know, first place to go. Oh, perfect. Well, we will link that all in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. You have an absolute wealth of knowledge. I always learn something from you every single time that we speak. So I really appreciate you coming on and just speaking so like wisely about all of these topics. I know it's going to help a lot of people on here. So yeah, once again, thank you so much, Beck. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me on. And I know we only scratched the surface on lots of things, but hopefully, um, hopefully it's helpful and, and hopefully the listeners uh, find some good sources of information in there.